The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Now, this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of Armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. <clears throat> I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done, ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body and I will establish, establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure forever, uh, endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Awesome. Well, uh, if you've got your Bibles already open to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to be spending our time there this morning. Um, we're going to start there, and then we're going to flick over to uh, chapters 11 and 12 as well. That's where we're going to be finishing our time today. We're in a... Um, a preaching series at the moment that we've called Monarch, where what we're doing is we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for the one who was to come to reverse the curse of sin and to bring mankind back into a relationship with God. And we're searching through this Messiah through the books of Samuel and Kings. Now, we know we're not going to find him here, but we're going to have a little bit of a look anyway, because this is what God's people were expecting. They were hoping for God to send the one that he had promised to set things right and to restore humanity to their right relationship with God, where we were created to have. In Genesis 3, not long after sin entered the world, God told mankind that he was sending someone, a descendant of the human race, to reverse the curse of sin. Then in Genesis 12, that hint gets added detail and the search gets a little bit narrower and we, we see that God's speaking to uh, Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and we find that this person to come is going to come from the Jewish race, a descendant of Abraham, and bring blessing to the world. Then Genesis 49, we get a little bit more detail. That it's gonna, the search gets narrower again. It's going to come from the, the tribe of Judah, one of Abraham's descendants. And uh, this, this person would come to have some kind of ruling authority amongst the people of Israel. They would rule the tribes. And then, <clears throat> when you get to the book of Samuel, we get this massive hint from uh, the lips of Hannah, where we're told that this one who was coming, this Messiah, would be a king whom God would raise up. And this is actually the first time, if, you, if you're going left to right through the Old Testament, the first time that the word Messiah is used in relation for this one to come is from the lips of Hannah. And it's also at this moment that she says that he will be a king. So it's this massive dose of detail, and this is why we're searching through the books of Samuel and Kings, because when Hannah said that, there was no king in Israel at that time. 
So when she says the Lord will raise up a king, the Lord will anoint his, uh, raise, uh, raise up his anointed as king, it's this huge detail that she's not just talking about her people there. She's, whether she knows it or not, speaking to the entire world. So this is why we're looking through these books. And even though our search in Samuel and Kings for the Messiah, for the king, the one that God was going to raise is going to be unsuccessful, what we will get in our study of these books is just even more detail which will point us to the true king and the true fulfillment of all of these promises. We'll get more promises as we go, these promises about our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so the plan is to look at the various kings that we get in Israel and in Judah in various amounts of detail and ask the question each time, is this the one? Is this the one? We started last week with Israel's first king, King Saul. It was a disaster, an absolute disaster. He was not the one that God chose. This week, we're looking at his successor, King David. And David is one of the most central figures of the Bible. He's up there with Moses and Abraham. And there is just simply too much content for us to pack uh, all of what we hear about David and from David in the Psalms into one morning together. And so I'm just going to be pulling out a couple of things that I think are really important uh, from David's life. The first thing is that God uses David to point to the Messiah. Through David, the expectations of the Messiah are radically clarified and heightened. Like we look at David's life and, and what God promises through David, and we get the impression, all right, this is, this is bigger than we originally thought. The second thing we want to look at is that God uses David to point to the grace of the Messiah. David's life is a demonstration of the felt reality of a life that has been totally regenerated by God. So let's pray about this. Let's pray uh, that God would open up our minds uh, and our hearts to hear this, and then we'll get into these texts. Lord, your word tells us that you are our shepherd, and we have what we need in you. You make us lie down in green pastures, and you lead us beside quiet waters. Lord, your word is the greenest pasture. Your word is full of life for us. And so we come to your word this morning, Lord. And, and whether we are feeling this or not, Lord, my, we, we want to not just come to this as words on a page, but a banquet for us to dine on and to feast upon. So feed us this morning in your word, Lord. Feed us, Lord, by your word. Nourish us this morning in your word, Lord. Give us everything we need. You are our shepherd, Lord. We have all that we need in you. Amen. How good is it when the kids are having a great time in life, kids? So good. All right. <clears throat> we all know what it's like to have an argument with a loved one, whether that's a parent or a child, a spouse, a brother or sister, a close friend, someone who we love and admire and adore, and when there's an argument between us and them, it just stings a bit more than any other regular argument, doesn't it? It might be that words were spoken that can't be taken back. 
It might be that things were done or not done. And now there's guilt and there's shame and there's even embarrassment around this relationship. Like there's this thing between us and them. There's this thing that stands between us. Like what once was, now there's just this awkwardness, like a, like a sharp something between us. And every time the relationship, we come close together, it stings, it points, it stabs, it hurts. I'd, I'd hazard a guess that we all know what that feels like. But I wonder how many of us know the incredible joy and liberty there is in a healed relationship. A relationship where grace has been brought into it, where forgiveness has happened, where, where, where true, truly guilt and truly shame, those things have been removed. And it's almost as if, if you've, if you've ever experienced that, it's almost as if that relationship wasn't just restored to what it was, but it's better somehow. Like having survived that trial, that relationship is now more robust, closer, more lovely. For Kirsty and I, there's been plenty of times where one of us, normally myself, has had to ask for forgiveness, and the other person, normally Kirsty, has demonstrated grace, and the Lord carries us through. Whether, we, whether that's a friendship, a spouse, a parent or a child, a brother or a sister or a friend, reconciliation brings liberty. And if you're here and you're a Christian, then your reality is that the most irreconcilable gap in the world has in fact been reconciled. Through Jesus Christ, God has forgiven our sins, which means that there is now no obstacle between us and God, and we now have peace with him. We have peace with him. That's our reality. And where I hope we will be led in our text today is that God doesn't want us to just be vaguely aware of that reality, but to feel every bit of it. To feel forgiven. For our guilt to actually feel like it's gone. And our shame to be done away with. To truly feel free from the domineering power of sin. We learned last week through, through Saul that sin wants to reign over us and have control over us. And one of the ways that it does this is by convincing us that our sin that we've committed against God, or our sin, it shouldn't come to light. If anyone found out about what's truly going on, they'd hate us and reject us. And so the way that sin has power, of, power over us is by convincing us, stay quiet, don't talk about this, keep this to yourself. Everybody is going to hate you if they find out. Sin entraps us inside a cage made of guilt and shame and embarrassment. And we're worried that if we put even a finger outside of that cage, our sin will be brought to light and condemnation will become and will be seen as a fraud. We're worried that people will find out about the reality inside of our hearts, that God will run out of patience with us, and that those around us who love us will reject us if they only knew the truth. But if we could simply open up our empty hands and receive with faith the very thing that Jesus gives to us, the very thing that Jesus, it brought great joy for Jesus to give to us. If we would simply resolve 
to receive his grace, determined to let our sin pass onto him and be rid of it forever, we would live lives that are free. One of the ways that I believe that we have been growing as a church is in our knowledge of our eternal union, union with God. I, I've, I believe that we've been growing in that, that we've becoming more acquainted with that. If you're a Christian, you're being united to God. He is in you and you are in him. He delights to have saved you. And there is nothing now that separates you from him. There is nothing that can interrupt that eternal union, union that you have with him. God is yours and you are his. And that is true forever. But where I would see, love to see us grow is in our experiential communion with God, our felt experience of the tangible fellowship with God. I would love for us to, would love to see us grow in knowing and believing all that is true about us in Christ Jesus, not just subscribing to it in some kind of theory not settling for it as some kind of uh, possibility, but as our deepest and truest felt reality. And my conviction is that if we as a community of faith, as brothers and sisters who love one another, would be willing to go down that road together and risk a little together, we would gain a kind of robust and fantastic community that onlookers would desire nothing else than to be part of. David's life, amongst other things, points, to, to this, points us to this in at least two ways. Firstly, his life points us towards the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, the King, Jesus, who takes away our sin. And secondly, his life demonstrates how to have that felt experience, that felt fellowship with God. Let's get something straight. David is on no pedestal in the Bible. We would do ourselves a massive disservice if we were to carry on thinking that the kind of joy in communion that David has with God was special and unique only to him and that was out of reach for us. That we can't have that kind of intimacy or relationship with God. It's not. That is on the cards for all of us, truly possible for all of us. So let's take a look first at how God uses David to radically clarify and heighten the expectation of this Messiah to come. In 2 Samuel 7, which Gerard just read out a few moments ago, God made a covenant with David, similar to the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. A covenant is basically just a hefty promise, and God came to David to make one with him. And just to give you a bit of background, after Saul died, David became king of Judah and then of Israel and all of Israel. And then uh, David moved to Bethlehem. He conquered, uh, sorry, moved to Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, and settled there as his hometown. And then brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, as well as the tabernacle, the tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant. And in chapter seven, David desired to build a house for God to to replace the tabernacle. He wanted to replace the tent that was there, the tent that Moses had constructed. He wanted to build a temple of cedar to replace this tent. But God replied to David through the prophet Nathan, No, you're not the one to build this house for me. Instead, God says, let me outline all that I'm going to do for you. 
And from there, God proceeds to make a covenant, make a promise that would become one of the most important developments in the unfolding narrative of God sending a Savior to save the world from sins. It comes to us in three parts. Part A is concerned with God's purposes in David's life so far. Part B is concerned with the promise of God's purposes for David's future. And part C is concerned with the promise of God's purposes beyond David. So let me read to you this text, which has become known as the Davidic Covenant. We're reading again from 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16. It says, So now, this is what you were to say to my servant David. This is God speaking to Nathan the prophet to say to David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. In other words, all of the favor that David had experienced so far in this life had come from God. He has not risen to power on the back of his accomplishments. This is all from the Lord. The Lord of hosts was the one who brought him from shepherding his father's flock to shepherding God's people, ruling over them. His ascension to the throne is entirely God's doing. David was God's choice of king, and God is the one who brought him up and cut off all of his enemies from him. Continuing in verse 9, God, God says, I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live here and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. This promise is for David's future. God promised to make David's name great, to make his name great amongst the world, to secure Israel in this land and to give them peace from all those who would seek to oppress them and enable David to have rest from all of his enemies. These things were really already true of David and Israel, but this promise indicates that more was to come. More peace and security was to come for Israel. And if you pay attention, we'll notice how these words look an awful lot like God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. God's covenant with Abraham to make his name great, to give his descendants land and to give them rest and peace from anyone who treated them with contempt. It suggests that God's promises to Abraham in in Genesis 12 and 15 were being somewhat fulfilled in David. Moving on, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever." So this third part looks not just to David's future, but beyond David. What God promised to Abraham would be partially fulfilled in David, but its true fulfillment would come from David's offspring. Instead of David building a house for God, God was going to build a house 
for David, not a house of cedar, but a royal dynasty. You see, God's promises to David went beyond David. David would one day die, and his purpose, God's purposes for him and for his people would outlive David. And it's at this point that we start to realize that God's promises for David's future will be fulfilled on multiple chronological layers. Imagine if God is speaking this promise to David before him, and behind David stands a long line of descendants, like ongoing mountain ranges in the background. From one vantage point, you can see the entire mountain range, and though these mountains are far apart, one in front of the other, you can see all of them from the same vantage point. So at the same time that God is talking to David, he's also talking about David's son, Solomon. He says that in the same way that he raised up David, he would raise up Solomon and would establish his kingdom. Solomon, who we'll look at next week, is the one who would build the house for God, the one who would build the temple. But at the same time that God is talking to David about Solomon, he's also talking about the other descendants who will take up the throne after David and after Solomon. Successive generations are in view here. The kings to sit on David's throne would each come to be known as a son of God. And this is why God says that he would establish his son and discipline him as a loving father would. But ultimately, in this great view of the mountain ranges, one, man, one mountain stands as the final and triumphant peak above them all. He would be the son of God, the true king, the Messiah, the Christ, who would reign forever. Jesus came to establish God's kingdom. He came to build a house for the name of the Lord. Jesus said he would rebuild it in three days. It was not a building, but his body, which would come to be known as the body of Christ, the church. And Jesus' throne is established forever. Because like David and Solomon, Jesus died. But unlike David and Solomon, Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. Jesus would become the Son of God forever. This is why David stands out as one of the central figures of the Old Testament. From the first promise of God's rescue plan in Genesis 3, we've had these ongoing developments of the promise of God to rescue his people from the curse of sin and to bless them by bringing them under his rule and reign. And in David, we get one of the most uh, significant increases of clarity. If Genesis 3 was the outline of the picture of God's rescue plan, and then Genesis 12 and 15 came and filled in the, filled in the, the, the area in, in the middle, it colored in the picture a little bit, then 2 Samuel 7 brings this expectation to a high-def reality and, realizes, and, and helps us to realize and prepare for the, the next best thing, the, the true Son of God, the King of kings, to come in the flesh. Not just an idea or a prophecy or a thought, but a person arriving on earth, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. David is not the Messiah, but what God does in David's life gives us immense clarity of expectation of the Messiah to come. God uses David to help us anticipate that this Messiah would be a king who would rule forever. That's what we get in Jesus Christ. Another thing that God used David for was to be a supreme example of the felt reality of a life that has been totally regenerated by God. When you, when you look at 
David's Psalms, you can't help but, but see the outpouring of his heart. And what we see as we read them is someone who knows well the joy of deep experiential communion with God. And when I say experiential communion, I mean that David didn't just have a knowledge of God. It he, he, he wasn't just like God in theory that he had heard about. He had a felt experience of God, a tangible awareness of God, a noticeable and exciting sensitivity to God. Just, look, just looking at one Psalm, Psalm 139, and taking a few verses from there, David says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. And I get the sense that this is where God wants to lead us as a church, not just today, but wholly as a church into the same tangible awareness and depth of the feeling of the God of grace. I believe that God wants to take us from just understanding that we're forgiven to feeling forgiven, to actually feeling that as our deepest reality, to take us from knowing that Christ has removed our sin to feeling the absence of our guilt, from just having a knowledge that our sins have been fully dealt with to feeling the clean and empty space where shame and embarrassment once were. David is a superb example of this. But the way it transpires for him stings and hurts. It happened like this. One of David's closest and most loyal companions was a soldier named Uriah. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, when Uriah was out fighting Israel's battles, David was back in Jerusalem and he came across Uriah's wife Bathsheba. David desired her, had her brought to him, and he slept with her. It was a treacherous and horrible sin to take a woman into his bed for his own pleasure. Now, David might have hoped that Bathsheba would stay silent and that would be the end of it, but things were about to get a lot more complicated. It was discovered not long after that Bathsheba was pregnant. So to try and cover up his sin, David summoned Uriah back home from the battlefield, from the front line, so that he would sleep with his wife, then assume that the child was his and David would be off the hook. But Uriah, being a loyal soldier, did not spend the night at home, but stayed with the other servants at the palace. He says, how, how, how can I go and stay, spend the night at home with my wife when my fellow soldiers and the Ark of the Covenant are out in the open field under the stars? Frustrated that his plan didn't work, David got Uriah drunk the following night and sent him home. But again, Uriah did not return home. He had too much integrity for that. So David sent Uriah back to battle with a note to give to Joab, the commander of David's army. The note simply said, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. David's plan was to kill Uriah. And then he would do the noble thing and marry Bathsheba. And when, then when it was discovered that she was pregnant with his baby, no one will know of his sin. And his plan worked. Uriah was killed. David took Bathsheba into his home and she became his wife and gave birth. And he might have thought that it was all over. No one's the wiser. But God saw it. 
And God considered what David did to be evil. Can you see the lengths that David went to to hide his sin, to, to cover it up himself, to, to make amends for it? We can relate to this, right? How many of us have something in our past, whether it was as recent as last night or going back decades that we have successfully hid this thing, something that's going on in our hearts, something that we've done, something that we, we feel guilt about, that, that we might be having the greatest kind of day and then that memory comes into our mind of what we did that time or that thing that happened to us and we, we are filled with guilt and shame and embarrassment. We know what's going on in David's head right now. We know the anxious agitation and the panicked adrenaline that sin generates. It makes us suspicious of everyone around us. Like, do they know? We second-guess everything that's spoken to us. Every sideways glance we, we analyze and think, oh, do they know? And we might try and remedy this with all sorts of distractions. Drinking, shopping, scrolling, comparing, whatever it is, coveting. We might try and atone for it in our own ways. We might load up on extra good works to try and balance the books. We might engage in some kind of unhelpful comparison, looking at others and going, well, at least I'm better than her. At least I haven't stuffed up like him. We might believe that what we need is time. And as long as there's enough time goes under the bridge, we'll be all right and time will wash away our guilt and shame. We might even go so far as self-inflicted punishment for sin. But anyone who has done these things knows the truth. None of them are enough. Not even close. And this is what David was about to learn. God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And Nathan told David a story about a crime that was very similar to David's, just a whole lot milder. And this story slipped through the cracks of the armor around David's ego. When he heard the story, David was furious and swore, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan rapidly fired back, you are the man. This was David's worst nightmare. His sin was known. Isn't this one of our greatest nightmares? That our sin would be publicly exposed. This is the reality that David was facing. And it's in verse 13 that I want us to pay the most attention to. We've been on this journey to get to 2 Samuel 12, 13. Because this is absolutely outrageous. Verse 13 is one of the most outrageous verses in the entire Bible. And if we are able to bring verse 13 to the very bottom of our hearts and know that this is on offer for us in Jesus Christ we will know peace and joy and liberty from sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. That is stunning. There is a great mass of weight in that sentence. That is a heavy sentence. Let's look at first at David's words. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And what we might find hard to get our heads around 
is the fact that there are plenty of other people who David has sinned against. There's Bathsheba, there's Uriah, there's the child that David had with Bathsheba, who would eventually die. There's Joab, the commander of the Lord's armies, who was the, who was the, the, the puppet that David used to have Uriah killed. There's Bathsheba's family, there's Uriah's family, there's other servants who are involved in all of that. But David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And just so we know what actually he means by that, we can look at Psalm 51, that, where David wrote, that David wrote Psalm 51 in response to all this, and he says, Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil thought in your sight. Done, done this evil in your sight. Against God and God alone has David sinned. That's what he means. And we might hesitate and even bristle at how audacious that is, but what it's telling us is that God is the only one who can truly deal with our sins in such a way that they are actually no more. God is the only one who can truly deal with our sins in such a way that our sins become no more, deleted, emptied from the recycle bin, and gone. You might be forgiven by someone for doing something. You might even forgive yourself. But unless you repent before the holy God of the universe the one of infinite innocence and beauty, then that sin is still on you and you will still have to pay for it. God is the only one who can truly cancel our debt. And so repentance must be to God alone. True repentance is more than just regret. It's more than just remorse. True repentance definitely involves those things, but it goes further. If all we feel is deep regret, then that doesn't mean that we have actually repented. True repentance is coming to God, running to Him, flying to Him, not away from Him. Because He is the only one who can forgive our iniquities. He is the only one who can pay our debts. He is the only one who can truly atone for our sins. Notice too that in David's repentance, he's not trying to make excuses or justify himself. He's... He's not blaming others. He's not trying to soften the blow. And when we do that, we're we're missing out. We're we're standing back from what true repentance is because to do that, to kind of go, well, this is the reason, God, I did this. Or this is the thing I'm kind of struggling with is if we're not actually that guilty. What, What we're doing is we're trying to spread the blame away from us and hoping that the spread of that blame will be the thing that atones for our sins, that we don't trust God enough to forgive our sins if we just were to confess them. We need someone else or some other kind of excuse to share the blame for that. True repentance is gut wrenching in its honesty. It does not leave out important details. It spills all of the beans in all of their wretched filth. Let's now look at Nathan's words. He says, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Friends, do we believe this? The Lord has taken away your sins. Can we just take that a little bit further into our hearts today? The Lord has taken away your sins. Let's just have that on repeat in our hearts and minds for just a few more moments. The Lord has taken away your sins. We need to have this on repeat in our lives. Why? Because the Lord has taken away our sins. It's true. 
And one of the most productive things that we can do as Christians is the hard work of making our souls believe it. Christian, the Lord has taken away your sins. Believe it. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says that God has laid your sin upon his son. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says that God has forgiven you of your sins. In Psalm 51, 2, it says that God has cleansed you of your sin. Psalm 32, 1 says he has covered your sin. Isaiah 38, 17 says he has cast all of your sin behind his back. Psalm 103.12 says, He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. In Micah chapter 7, verse 18, he has par- it says that God has passed over your sin. And then in verse 19, it says that he has trampled your sin underfoot. In Revelation 3.5, it says that he blotted out your sin. In Micah 7.19, it says that God has cast your sin into the sea. In Psalm 51.9, it says, He has turned his face away from your sin. And Isaiah 43.25 says, He has forgotten your sin and refuses to remember it. All of that is true of our sin. And if you're struggling to believe that God could do that with your sin, if you can't shake the feeling that God can't get past your sin, that you're somehow special, And that your sin is the one sin that Jesus' death wasn't enough to pay for. The one stain that that his blood cannot cleanse and scrub away. Look at these verses. Look at God's word. And let the truth of God's word convince our hearts of what is absolutely true in Jesus Christ. I read a really great book this past week. Uh, I've got it up here in front of me. It's by a guy named Sam Storms, and it's called A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin. That list there is just the contents page. A dozen things that God did with your sin and three things he'll never do. If you're here and you're struggling to be convinced that God actually has dealt with your sin, that the Lord has taken away your sins, this book is yours. Let's come and grab it after the service. One catch. I get to pray with you first, though. Just come and see me afterwards. You don't even have to say anything. Just put your hand on the book and I'll pray for you if that's what you feel comfortable with. We need to get here, folks. Not just the, this is a nice theory. We come and sing these songs and remind ourselves of these things and it sits up here. But we need to get here and let it go deep into our hearts and and flood our limbs. How does the Lord take away our sins? Did God sweep our sin under the rug? Pretend it didn't happen? No, God is, God is way too serious about his holiness about, to do that. God's way too serious about... Sin is eternally offensive to God. That can't happen. If God were to do that, he would cease to be God. He is holy and his holiness would not be able to abide, could not abide that. No, the bottom line answer for how a holy God is able to fully deal with the sins of mankind is Jesus Christ. Jesus is fully God, holy as God the Father is holy, and he is the judge of all of mankind. But Jesus put on flesh and he became the judged. 
He stood in our place as our substitute, and he took the penalty, for our, penalty of our sins from us. Jesus absorbed God's eternal, perfect, and justified wrath against our sin. He took it all. Jesus drank the cup of judgment dry, and he did not leave a single drop in that cup for us. Christian, your job is to take the enormity of all of that truth into your heart and to believe it. Our job is to look at the empty and dry cup of the judgment of God that is lying at the foot of the cross. Take the cup. It has our name on it. But know that Jesus drank it all and left not a drop for us. To quote the English Puritan Samuel Ward, Swim out of these weeds and lay hold on Christ. Set before your eyes Christ and his promise to receive all who truly desire the prize of his blood. Study, strive, and endeavor to believe. Today, salvation is offered. Step from death to life and write this day your birthday. By faith, you are made a son of God forever. Christian, the Lord has taken away your sins. So let him Take them. Let your sins be on him forever. And let us never try and take them back to ourselves. God takes away our sin so that every single barrier and obstacle between us and him would be removed. And we would be able to come into a beautiful and wonderful and fulfilling and satisfying relationship with God. This is the point. We might have the forgiveness of sins clear and solid in our minds. Our theology can be as tight as ever and robust, and as, as robust as we want. But God's desire for us is that to truly is to truly transform our hearts, and, and for that to be the felt reality of our lives. He wants us to know not just about our eternal union, but to have experiential communion with Him, to have that fully felt communion and fellowship with God. Do you, not, I mean, do you want to not only be aware of God's grace, but to actually experience the joy of His grace upon your life? Do you want the joy of the Lord to swell and overwhelm the banks of your hearts? Humbly bring His grace to the darkest place of your heart and be forgiven. See, what if that thing, all things, whatever it is, what if that was actually the doorway to intimacy with Jesus? Grace can do that. Grace will do that. And what if we became a community that dared to go there with one another? What if we were so daring to believe the grace of God that we actually opened up with one another in order to let God's grace stretch its legs and flex its strength within us. You see, God administers his grace to us in strangely powerful ways through the fellowship of believers, through confession of sin and within the reception of grace. What is the one thing in your life that you can't talk to anybody about? And what if you talked with someone about it? That's risky, right? It sends a chill down my spine. 
What if you were a part of the community of faith where that risk was tempered because the church was saturated in grace? I think if we did this, and we did, and we did this with brothers and sisters with a commitment to going, I'm, I'm going to show the grace of God to my brother or sister. I think the rest of the Sunshine Coast would look in on us and say, whoa, how can we be part of that? I had this experience last year with, uh, last year in June with a, a group of brothers. We, we went to Toowoomba for a few days and we shared our hearts and we spoke about the things to one another that, we, that nobody else had ever found out about us. We spoke about the things that we felt that like we could never talk about. And then we shared the grace of God with one another. And over those three days, we watched our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, slay monsters. And if I can just add this, those monsters are there, but they're a corpse now. There are consequences to our sin. David had... David certainly had to learn this. God's grace is no magic wand that disappears consequences in this life. But the reality of his eternal saving grace frees our hearts so much from captivity to sin that we can fully and willingly and gladly face those consequences. Think now of the one thing that you feel you can't talk to anybody about and know this. There is a future where that thing does not call the shots anymore. I'm going to pray. And my prayer is going to be one that leads us in confession. And I want, you, I want to encourage you to take the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ to the darkest corner of your, your heart. Let's confess our sin to Jesus now in our hearts, in all of its ugliness, in, in all of its terribleness and then let's let's let Jesus deal with it from now on and then can I suggest to you that later on today this week this month get together with a brother or sister and act like David and say this is what I repented of and then the other person can act like Nathan and say and the Lord has taken away your sins you will not die and then swap turns. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.